through um, this is a, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Um, Paul had discipled Timothy and given Timothy a lot of uh, instruction in the faith. Um, and in fact, uh, Paul had installed Timothy as the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Paul, at this point uh, in his life, is actually very near the end of his life. Paul is in prison uh, in Rome, and Paul knows that he's soon going to be executed um, and martyred for his faith. Um, this is actually the last book of the Bible that Paul wrote, uh, and it's to Timothy, and he, he really pours out his heart, um, telling Timothy basically, hey, this is how you're going to do this ministry uh, when I'm gone. In verses 16 and 17, we have perhaps the strongest defense of the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture anywhere in the Bible. Um, Many have preached entire sermon series on those two verses alone. People have written entire books on those two verses alone. There's a lot that we can learn there. Uh, but in today's sermon, rather than focusing on the what and really diving into the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, I want to take a step back and look at the verses preceding it and look at the why. In other words, why do we need Scripture? Why is it so important that we understand and know Scripture? Psalm 119, 105 describes God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So with that in mind, I have just uh, two main points this morning. The first main point, we're going to see the darkness that God's word shines into. And then the second point is we're going to see how the light of God's word shines into that darkness. So let's read um, 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 through 17. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the first verse that we're going to dive into here is verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, a lot could be said about this verse, and it actually ties in a little bit with the um, preceding verses. We're not going to dive into that too much in depth. I just want to highlight two quick things about this verse. The first thing is that the world hates us as Christians and persecutes us as Christians because it hated and persecuted Christ and continues to do so. Listen to these words of Jesus in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. He says later in, in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, the world loves the darkness, right? And so when Jesus comes in and, and comes as the light of the world, the world rejects him, the world hates him, the world persecutes him. Ultimately, the world ends up putting him on a cross. 
And so if we're followers of Jesus, because we belong to Jesus, the world's going to hate us as well, which is going to result in persecution. The second thing I want to highlight about this is that this persecution is going to look different depending on your cultural context. There are believers right now in other parts of the world who are meeting just like we are to sing songs and worship to Jesus. They're opening scriptures and learning about Jesus. The difference is they know that if the wrong person finds their meeting location, they may be arrested, they may be beaten, they may be put in prison, they may even be killed. Right? That's going on today around the world in other churches. Now, that's not the context that we live in. Right? Uh, we're not really worried about you know, Vacaville PD coming in and arresting all of us, and we'll spend the next couple weeks in prison for, for being Christians. That's probably not going to happen here. But there are other types of persecution that we can face even in the US. Um, that could include uh, the loss of uh, employment. Um, people have been fired for taking a stand for their faith. Um, that can include legal battles. People have been sued in this country for taking a stand for their faith. Um, but the really common one is social consequences. Um, people that do not like what Christians stand for um, may persecute us simply by disliking us and by treating us poorly or by cutting off relationships with us at all. I do have some good news this morning. If you want to avoid all of that persecution, it's very easy. Just don't desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, right? Because that's what, that's what Paul says. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can get out of that persecution simply by not following Christ, right? And so that's kind of our, our first challenge this morning as we look at that text, the first question to kind of ask in self-reflection, am I willing to follow Christ? Am I willing to desire to live a godly life no matter what the costs are, no matter uh, what relationships I lose, no matter what job I lose, am I willing to follow Christ? Paul continues, um, so backing up to verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this latter verse, um, because there's a lot here for us. This is talking about false teachers who have infiltrated the church. To add a little bit of context, I'm going to back up and read verses 1 through 9 of uh, this same chapter. And listen here to this description of these false teachers who infiltrate the church. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Notice some of the descriptions that Paul gives here for these false teachers. They're lovers of self. They're lovers of money. They're lovers of, of pleasure. They're proud. Now, our culture today since, tends to see those things not as vices, but as virtues, 
right? You can go to a local bookstore and find many, many books that will teach you how to better love yourself, how to become more proud, um, how to love money better, how to love pleasure better, and how to pursue those things better, right? In, in this country, we've set aside an entire month out of the year that we label Pride Month, and we say that that's a good thing to have pride. Our world sees the, these things as virtues, not as vices. And you know what? That really shouldn't surprise us that the world sees these things uh, this way. My, one of my favorite podcaster, uh, Daryl Harrison, says, the world is going to world, right? In, in other words, of course, this is how those who are apart from Christ are going to view these things. It makes sense. But remember that this passage isn't talking about the world. This passage is talking about false teachers who have infiltrated the church with this kind of teaching. Notice it says evil people and imposters. I looked up, I don't know uh, Greek, um, but my Bible so study software knows Greek, and it defines the Greek word for imposter as a deceiver who especially works by trickery or persuasive and loud speech. So these are, are false teachers who've come in, they're pretending to be genuine Bible teachers, but what they're teaching is, is not right. So the question then is, well, what kinds of things are these false teachers teaching? What, what exactly does this look like? And the truth is that that's a, that's a very broad category, right? There's a lot of different false teachers that have a lot of different false teachings that they bring. Let me give you just a couple categories um, to think about with this. One is false gospels, right? A lot of these false teachers, they just have a different method of salvation than what scripture has. Or going back to our text we just read, they're teaching people to love themselves, to love money, to love pleasure. They're excusing sin. They're telling, oh, you don't, you don't need to repent of that sin. God loves you the way you are. He'd never ask you to change, right? That sort of excusing sin. Here's another big one is political or social ideologies, um, especially those that are popular or trendy. Of course, those are going to work their way into the church through false teachers. And ultimately, if we were to flip the page to chapter four, Paul talks about the itching ears of culture, right? There are those who... Um, there are teachers who they know what the culture wants to hear. They don't want to be persecuted. They know the message that the world likes, and so they craft a message that will suit that. Notice verse 13 also says that these false teachers go from bad to worse. Have you noticed this at all about our culture? Like, you see something going on in the world, and you're like, that's, that's really bad. And then a little while later, you see something else and you go, you know what, that's even worse, right? And you're like, wow, it's, it is, it really is, it's going from bad to worse. It seems like it keeps getting worse. We see some of these evil ideologies that are in the world today, and all of them have infiltrated various churches in our culture. Let me give you just a single example. So if you think about God's design for uh, marriage, for gender, for sexuality, for the family, if you think about, you know, just that as a whole uh, section of teaching, the world has discarded all of that. I, there are very few things that the Bible teaches on those subjects that our culture agrees with. The world has completely discarded it. And going from bad to worse, just when you think, okay, I think this is about as bad as our culture could possibly get on this subject, you see something in the news and you go, oh my goodness, it's actually continuing to get worse. It's getting even further from Scripture. The final thing that this verse says about these imposters is that they are deceiving and being deceived. And this is a, a really important point that I, I, I want to highlight, and I, I hope 
um, is clear to everyone. So think about the way that deception makes its way into uh, the church. So at the, at the very top, if you will, you have false teachers who, they are not Christians, they don't believe a word of the Bible. Okay, they're, they're in ministry for some other reason. Maybe they want money, they want to gain some other position by virtue of being in ministry. Uh, or maybe their real goal is some sort of a political or social agenda and they see religions as a way to kind of organize around that and give them the momentum to achieve those things. For whatever their reason is, they don't really believe in the Bible. This is a means to an end rather than an end in itself for them. The problem is that these false teachers deceive other people and then they deceive other people and then they deceive other people. It's kind of like a demonic form of discipleship. And the problem is that this can end up, especially when you consider technology, right? You can have a, a false teacher on the other side of the country or even on the other side of the world who's deceiving people who, um, like he's never even met, right? And, and so they're able to deceive people via the internet. And then those people are going into their churches and deceiving people in their churches at the grassroots level. And so you, you have this, um, you have this uh, form of, um, discipleship that is not good, where these false teachings are spreading from the top from these false teachers who do not understand or are not Christians at all, but when you filter it all the way down, what you end up with is even people who are Christians who are deceived by bits and pieces of these evil ideologies, and they don't know that what they have believed contradicts scripture. And so they're going into their churches and they're bringing these ideologies that they believe that these things are pleasing to God and honoring to God, but they're actually coming from these false teachers. Uh, one of the things I want to highlight about this that's really important to know is that this deception can come from some of the nicest and most well-meaning people you know. It's like, well, how, how, did, how did they get deceived? But this leads us to an important question, and in fact, this whole section, we're almost done with point one already, this whole section was designed to lead us to this one important question. How do we know if we're the ones who are deceived? Right, maybe they have it right and we're the ones who are deceived. How do we know? How do we avoid being deceived and then in turn deceiving others? The world is a dark place that's filled with moral confusion and deception. How can we see what's good and right? And that brings us to the second point, which is the light of God's word. So the world in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, it wasn't that much different than ours. They were facing these same issues. Timothy had all these false teachings that were threatening him just as we do today. And so what is it that Paul is going to say to Timothy? What is uh, Paul's advice to Timothy on how to avoid deceiving and then, or being deceived and then going on to deceive others? He says, all right, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Paul is instructing Timothy to have his feet firmly planted in scripture. It's been said that our culture has its feet firmly planted in midair. Now, if you think about that, like, well, that's kind of amusing. How does one firmly plant their feet in midair? Let me unpack that a bit. A lot of our culture believes that we are evolving morally. Right? In other words, we are more moral today than we were 100 years from, from now, and in 100 years, we will be more moral then than we are today. There's this continual progression of moral improvement. But scripture tells us that this isn't the case. Ecclesiastes 
says that there is nothing new under the sun. Our culture's morality is cyclical. It's, it's circular. It's not, um, it's not progressive. What the culture doesn't understand is that as they seek ideas to problems, they come up with an ideology outside of scripture to address a problem. The issue is it creates new problems. And so they come up with a new ideology to address those problems. And eventually, given enough time, they end up all the way back around at the beginning where they started. They're going in circles. They don't understand that they're not coming up with new ideas. All they're doing is recycling the moral failures of the past. Like fashion trends, these ideologies go in and out of style. That's what's meant by the world having its feet firmly planted in midair. There's no objective uh, truth to ground their values in, so their views are constantly shifting. I think understanding this is really, really important for us as believers. If we believe that morality is kind of this linear progression, then we will fear getting left behind. We'll see the latest and greatest thing that the world is believing, and we'll go, man, I really don't want uh, to get left behind by this, right? And one of, the, one of the phrases we'll often use is, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, or, you know, history's going to judge you for, um, for not holding this position. But if we understand that morality is cyclical and it's really just going in circles, we're not so worried about that. We can stand in place with our feet firmly planted in scripture knowing, yeah, the, the world's going to chase its tail. It's going to keep going in circles looking for these answers. But we have the answers and we don't need to follow their ideologies. That's Paul's exhortation to Timothy here. He wants Timothy to have his feet firmly planted in scripture and not chase the ever-shifting ideologies from the world. Let's continue with our passage here. He says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Knowing from whom you learned it. So I think one of the things we tend to struggle with in our culture is who we allow to influence us. Right, now it's easy for me um, to, uh, to look judgmentally towards the younger generation on this. It's easy for me to go, okay, are you guys serious right now? That dude on TikTok is a clown. Why is it that this guy is influencing your worldview? Like just because he's funny and relatable and it looks like he's having fun in life and it just kind of makes sense to you, now he's teaching you worldview? Like come on, seriously, like think more critically about who it is that's influencing you. But you know what, it's not just the younger generation. Right? My generation, generations older than me, have the same issues, right? We have these celebrities that have so much influence over us, um, whether it be uh, online or wherever it is that we're um, getting our information from them. And the, the challenge with that is that we don't really see their lives. We don't really know these people. We can't really examine their lives to see if what they're teaching actually is making sense and is working. Let me read for you Hebrews 13.7. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Right? So rather than being influenced by celebrities we don't know, we should be influenced by godly leaders whose way of life we can observe and then measure against the standard of scripture. In other words, it's better to imitate the pastor, the local pastor you know whose life you can observe, rather than the celebrity pastor that you really only see online and you don't know much of anything about his life. So who was it that taught Timothy? 
We learn in chapter one of this book that it was his mother and grandmother who raised him in the faith. If you think about this, so Timothy has this godly mom, this godly grandma, who have poured into him with scripture and given him a solid foundation. And he's seen their way of life. He's seen how they have lived in the faith. How foolish would it be for Timothy to reject the teaching of his mom and his grandma to chase some new ideology in the world? That would be really foolish on Timothy's part. But of course, this sort of thing was common in Paul's day, as it is in our day. And that's why he warns Timothy against it. We also know that Timothy was discipled by Paul. Timothy could see Paul's way of life and know that he was the real thing. Paul gave Timothy a great example to follow. So why would Timothy reject that and allow imposters to deceive him? Let me give one final encouragement uh, quickly on this point. We've been looking at this from Timothy's perspective, but let's flip the script uh, just for a second and just ask the question, who are your Timothys? Who is it that you can build this foundation in, right? So you might be a mom or a grandma. You might be a, a dad or a grandpa. You might be a Sunday school teacher um, or a children's church worker. Um, you might just be a babysitter. Who is it that you have the opportunity to encourage and disciple in the faith? Timothy's mom and grandma, you know, when he was little and they were trying to teach him scripture, they probably they had no idea he was going to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus someday. They didn't know that he was going to be such a key player, but they faithfully spoke the word to him and taught it to him, and God used that. So think about who in your life you can encourage in the word and help build that foundation. It might be something as simple um, for parents as um, helping your kid memorize verses of scripture. It might be something as simple as texting verses of scripture to a friend or just saying, hey, this is what God's been teaching me in the word this week. Um, these are all things that we can do. But let's continue with our passage. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, the problem with the darkness isn't just that the world has the wrong views on how to raise a family or what marriage should look like. The problem is worse than that. It's actually much worse than that. See, every one of us comes into this world as a sinner and as an enemy of God. Without some sort of intervention from God, we die and spend eternity in hell under his wrath. You can look at every single ideology that the world has to offer, and none of them give us a solution to our biggest problem. You can go to the self-help store at the library, and it's not going to tell you how to be saved from the wrath of God. Scripture is what makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is God's word that warns us that all sin must be punished. And that if we're going to receive that punishment for our sin, that's going to look like us spending eternity in hell under God's wrath. God's word also tells us that God the Son took on human flesh and lived a perfect life. We can read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the life that Jesus lived, and we can see his righteousness. God's word tells us that Jesus offered up his life as a sacrifice, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. God's word tells us that God the Father poured out his wrath on Jesus so that we can be forgiven for our sin and declared righteous. God's word tells us that Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, and then 
ascended into heaven. And God's word tells us that all who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus for salvation will have their sin forgiven and will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. God's word tells us these things, right? Most of us have verses of scripture memorized, whether it be John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. These things come from scripture. These answers aren't in the world. That's why it's so important to have our feet firmly planted in scripture. This is where we find out about salvation. In John 6, Jesus had just given the crowd some difficult uh, teaching, and most of the crowds had left. They were like, okay, that's it. Jesus has lost his mind. We're, we're done with this. And they leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them if they're going to leave too. And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter wasn't saying that he understood everything in Jesus' sermon. He wasn't saying that everything Jesus said was easy to accept. But he recognized that in Jesus' words were where he was going to find eternal life. How could he possibly abandon that? And we should have that same attitude as Peter. There are things in scripture that are hard to understand. There are some things in scripture that are hard to accept. There are many things in scripture that will get us ridiculed by our culture. But scripture is what makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why would we want to abandon the words of scripture? And so at last, we get to our famous verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice, it's all scripture. It's not just our favorite passages. It's not just the ones in the Bible that we have underlined. All of it is from God, and all of it is profitable. What does it mean when he says that it was breathed out by God? Although God used human authors to write the scripture, and they wrote in a way that was consistent with their style, their personality, their culture, etc., all the words of scripture are from God and carry his full authority. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, said that not an iota or dot would pass from the law until all was accomplished. In other words, even the most minor details in scripture carry the full authority of God, and we cannot discard them. One of the implications of this, we can't ever dismiss a certain passage of scripture as the mere opinion of the human author. And, and you hear that a lot. Well, I don't really, that's just Paul's opinion. We're not going to pay attention to that. I, that's, ju that's, just, that's just Paul. He didn't really understand that very well. No, 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 no. These words of scripture are breathed out by God. They carry the full authority of God himself. Sometimes when discussing a controversial subject with someone, they will challenge me and they'll say, well, show me where Jesus said that, that, that this thing that you're claiming, show me uh, where Jesus said that. And one of the things I will do just to make this point to them is I will take them somewhere in the Old Testament, somewhere like Leviticus, and I'll say, right here is where Jesus said that. And they will, they will be beside themselves. They're like, you, you idiot. Like, are you serious right now? Do you not know that what you just referenced is more than a thousand years before Jesus? Jesus didn't say that. He hadn't even been born yet. But of course, I do that on purpose. I'm making a point. No, no, no. All of scripture is breathed out by God. You're not going to limit me to the four gospels and say that unless I can find it during Jesus's earthly ministry, he didn't say it. No, the words in Leviticus are just as much the word of God as the Sermon on the Mount is. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, 
Again, we could spend a lot of time breaking these down, um, and we won't do that this morning. I'm just going to give a broad overview of it. Romans 12.2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is how God's word works in our lives to sanctify us, to do what this passage says for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So let me give you a quick example um, of this. Well, first, first my overview. So God's word changes the way we think and the way we see the world and the way we see ourselves, and that transformed thinking changes our attitudes and our behaviors. So let me give you an example of that. Suppose, hypothetically, that there was a Christian man who was harsh and inconsiderate with his wife. He's just kind of a jerk. One day, that Christian man is reading Ephesians chapter 5, and he sees that God expects him to love and to sacrifice for his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Holy Spirit helps the man to understand the passage. The Holy Spirit also holds up a mirror to him through that passage to show him that, like, buddy, you're, you're not living up to this. You're not doing this the way you need to. The Holy Spirit also brings conviction. The man feels guilty. He knows that he's sinning, that he's not living the way God wants him to. The man then repents, and he becomes a godlier husband as a result. He grows in things like patience, kindness, empathy, and self-sacrificing love. So scripture has changed his thinking. It's changed the way he sees himself, the way he sees his marriage, and as a result, it's changed his attitude towards his marriage, and now it's changing his behavior and the way he treats his wife. That is, of course, just one example. Our goal as Christians is to have our minds completely transformed by Scripture so that it is touching every area of our life in that way. And then the final verse. And I wish we could do a full sermon on just this final verse, um, but I'm sure you guys have other places to be at some point this morning, uh, so we won't. But he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if you're a highlight or underline kind of person with your Bible, I would highlight the word every. I think the word every is very important there. This verse is where we get the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. Notice it says that Scripture equips us for every good work. Or to put it in the negative, there is no good work that Scripture does not equip you to do. So if there's something that God wants you to do, some good thing God wants you to do, Scripture is going to equip you to do that. This point is extremely important, and it is constantly under attack in the world and even in the church. There are those who will come in and say, well, no, 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 no. Scripture doesn't really tell you how to do this kind of a good work. You're going to need these other sources that are bringing in these worldly ideologies. They will tell you how to think about this. They will tell you how to see this. They will tell you how to act in this way. And that's, that's not accurate. Scripture tells us these things. One of the things that I want to encourage you to watch out for um, with this is those who cite love your neighbor as yourself as their sole biblical justification for something that they want you to do. For many, love your neighbor is a Trojan horse by which they can bring any ideology from the world and put it into scripture. And so it goes, the logic goes something like this, and it's very simple. One, the Bible says to love your neighbor. Two, this particular ideology from the world is the best way to love your neighbor. Therefore, three, the Bible says you should embrace this ideology. If you don't, you're being unloving and you're disobeying God, 
right? And now this ideology that's not in the Bible has come in, and it's supposed to carry the full weight of God's authority. But Scripture just doesn't just tell us to love our neighbors. It tells us how to love our neighbors. It tells us not to steal from our neighbor, not to covet our neighbor's stuff, not to commit adultery with our neighbor's wife, right? It tells us to um, encourage, to rebuke, to exhort our neighbors, to share the word of God with our neighbors, right? Scripture tells us how to love our neighbors. We don't need to take all these other ideologies in and use those to tell us how to love our neighbors. Scripture tells us how to do that. It is sufficient to teach us how to love our neighbors. Beware of this kind of deception. The bottom line with this verse is that God's word tells us everything we need to know to be godly people who shine brightly in this dark world. We don't need to embrace the ideologies of darkness when we have in our hands the light of God's word. So let me give some concluding exhortations this morning. This world is a dark place that's filled with moral confusion, and we have in our hands the word of God that shines a bright light for us. You know, I was discussing this sermon with a friend of mine, and he suggested I should mention in my conclusion that, you know, it's important to compare everything we see in the world with Scripture to see if it makes sense or not, and to see if it agrees with Scripture or not. And I totally agree with him, but that requires us knowing Scripture well, right? If you wanted to, spe- if you wanted to be able to spot a counterfeit $100 bill, you would need to be intimately familiar with what a genuine $100 bill looks like to then be able to see the differences. If you only have a baseline understanding, I don't know about you guys, I don't see $100 bills very often, right? I don't spend a lot of time studying them, so I might fall for a counterfeit. If I wanted to not, I would need to really be super familiar with every detail on the $100 bill. And it's the same thing with scripture. If we're not really, really familiar with the details of scripture, then when somebody comes comes along with a counterfeit, it might just kind of make sense to us unless we have something to compare it to. The challenge, then, is to be Christians whose minds are fully saturated in the word of God. We spend hours every day being influenced by the world. We're influenced by the world when we go to work. We're influenced by the world when we watch TV or when we're on the internet or social media or listening to music. Everything we do, even driving, you see billboards of the world trying to influence us, right? Everything we do, we are being influenced by the world. If we want to fight uh, back on that and have a biblical worldview, if we want to stand on God's word, We need to fill our minds with it and have our minds transformed by it. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So my exhortation for all of us today is to identify one or two specific steps that we can take this week um, or this month towards having minds saturated in scripture. So I'm just going to give some like broad suggestions and um, see if maybe one of these fits your present circumstance and would be helpful for you. Maybe if if you're someone who comes to church a couple times a month, maybe your step is coming every week. Or if you do come every week, maybe your step is to come an hour earlier for Sunday school. I love the Sunday school program that we have here. Um, I like that we have like rotating different teachers. Um, And so we we learn a lot. We have have good discussions in Sunday school. If you're not coming for Sunday school, I would encourage you in that. That's a great way to have your mind better saturated in scripture. Or maybe the step for you is to begin reading scripture daily if you're not doing that already. Or if you're reading every day, maybe you need to read more or take notes on what you're reading or maybe commit to reading the Bible through in a year. Or another good step to take is memorizing scripture. I think that is a very um, overlooked spiritual discipline. 
that's a great way for us to learn the word of God and have it transform our thinking. And then lastly, maybe the step is to spend less time on things like um, social media and TV and replace that with solid Bible teaching. For each of us, this passage should give us a hunger to fill our minds with scripture so that we can be men and women who are equipped for every single good work that God has prepared for us to do. So I encourage you to not just vaguely and passively want that, but to decide on a, a specific plan to actively pursue that. We do live in a dark world with a lot of moral confusion and a lot of chaos. But thank God for giving us his word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we know that uh, this, this word that you have given us is an amazing gift to us. You didn't have to give us this, God. You could have just left us in the darkness. You could have left us here, God, but instead you gave us your word to show us what is true. You gave us your word to teach us, to make us wise for salvation through faith in your son and to help us to be sanctified and to grow in you. Help us, God, to be people who are in your word, who uh, are studying your word, who have our, our whole thinking shaped by the word of God. God, please keep us from error and help us to glorify you in everything that we say and do. Thank you, God, for all of your love and kindness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.